All right, let's go before the Lord in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we have come here today to seek Your face. And we have gathered here today to sing praise to Your name. And I thank You that You are here. You are uh, moving within Your people. You are moving amongst Your people here in Your church. And so, Father, now I ask that You would open Your Word to us. I pray, God, that You would open our hearts and our, our eyes, that You would help us to understand these truths that are set before us, that it would have a wonderful impact upon us, and that as we see You in Your Word, God, that we would fall more in love with You. I pray that You would encourage us into a, a greater level of obedience, a greater passion for You, a greater commitment and service to You. I pray above all, Lord, that You would be glorified, that You would be honored, that You would be worshipped, even now. Uh, the singing is such a wonderful gift. It's such a, a sweet opportunity to express uh, so much of our hearts toward You, God. But now uh, this is just a continuation of worship as now we have come to hear from You and we are asking, God, that You would speak to Your church. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Okay, so today we're going to be covering Acts chapter 11 and 12, and a good portion of chapter 11 is just a recap of some of the events that happened in chapter 10, so that's why we're going to cover as much ground as we are today, because in some ways a big part of the chapter 11 is just a review, so I won't spend too much time expounding on that as we work our way through. And if I were to try to describe in a nutshell what we're looking at here in the text, in the narrative where we're at today, this is the point in, in church history and biblical history where the gospel goes outside of Israel, outside of the, the Jewish people. To us, that may not seem like that big of a deal we're, we're kind of used to, as I've said, the idea that God desires all people to be saved. That is nothing new to us, but this was huge. This was a major, major deal at this time and this place in the Bible. You know, from the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis chapter 1. And it didn't take long before the men, the, the man, the woman that He created, they rebelled, they, they fell in the garden there. And God had promised in Genesis chapter 3 that there would be a Redeemer. He set forth this promise that He was going to redeem. And that really is the theme throughout all of the Old Testament. We witness God's plan of redemption unfolding. And He calls a man named Abram. He was a, a, a pagan idol worshiper in Genesis chapter 12. He calls him out and he says, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your home and go to a place where I will show you. And he makes some wonderful promises to Abram, who would later become Abraham. And he tells him that he'll be the, the father of a multitude, the father of nations. And from his, his lineage would come kings. And that one day the, the Messiah would come from him. And, and God's chosen people would come from this man, Abram. And, and we know the story. The nation of his, uh, Israel comes forth. And eventually the Messiah would come out of that nation, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So God had a very special love and purpose and plan for His chosen people, the people of Israel. 
But God had a plan that was so much bigger than that. God had a plan that would touch all the peoples all around the world. And so we are witnessing the point in biblical history where that begins to happen. And it comes as a real shock to the people of Israel. They are very surprised at this. They really thought that God's blessing was for them and for them alone. They were God's chosen people and that God would never go to the Gentiles. That's a Bible word that you hear frequently, the word Gentile. And it simply means anyone who is not a Jew. So you have the Jews and then you have everyone else, the Gentiles. In a sense, it's not a derogatory term when you consider that. It simply means anyone who's not a Gentile or um, a Jew, but it became a derogatory term as well. Oftentimes it would be used interchangeably for, for people that were considered to be uh, less than or just scoundrels, anyway, a non-Jew, a pagan, an idol worshiper. They would also be called a Gentile, so to speak. And that was the way much of the, many of the Jews at that time looked at non-Jews. And so to them it was a, a shock to think that God planned to save the Gentiles too. And so that's what we're looking at here in, in uh, the text. Up to this point, we've seen Peter as a major character in the book, in the first 12 chapters. And he's going to exit out today. And Paul, uh, pick, when we pick up in chapter 13, he will become the next major figure throughout the remainder of the book as he goes out as the apostle to the Gentiles, as he goes out and he starts to take the gospel to the non-Jews. Let me just say this, I've been calling him Saul, and I haven't really explained why the Bible calls him Saul and then Paul. Saul was a Hebrew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? And that is his Hebrew name, Saul, but he was also a Roman citizen. And so uh, he goes by the name Paul, which would be a, his Roman name as he is moving amongst the Gentiles. So initially we call him Saul, the Bible calls him that, but eventually his name changes to Paul, and that, that is why. So I just want to make that clear. It's not until chapter 13 that we start to see that actually happen. So, as you'll recall, Peter had gone down to the house of Cornelius, and he took the gospel, he began to preach, and the Holy Spirit fell upon that place, and they were all shocked and amazed at what they were seeing. And now Peter's going to come back to Jerusalem, and that's where we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 11. Verse 1. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from, beginning, from the beginning, saying... We'll stop right there. So Peter comes back to Jerusalem. Word had reached the church there. This is the headquarters of the church, the mother church at that time. And the, the Jewish brethren, the Jewish Christians, were furious that Peter went into the house of the Gentile and actually ate with these people. That to them would have been one of the worst things that you could possibly do. That may seem kind of strange to us, but to, to eat with uh, Gentiles would be... Uh, Fellowship, it would be intimacy, it would be acceptance. It would be to say that, that you, are, you are fine, you are accepted, and we can have fellowship together. That was considered a, a grievous sin to do something like that. So they're shocked, they're angry with Peter that he would do that, and they call him to account for it. And now Peter's going to go back and explain much of what happened in chapter 10. So this is a recap. All right, so verse 5. 
Peter said, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, No, not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. So he's, he's telling them of the, the vision that he had initially had. You'll recall Cornelius had sent some people to Joppa to get Peter. And while they were on their way, Peter fell into this trance and he saw this sheet come down and it had uh, animals in it. And the voice said to arise, kill and eat. And he was extremely confused by this. And he said, Lord, no way. I've never eaten anything unclean before. And then the voice said to him, what God has cleansed, you must not call unclean. That is that word common to say that it is unclean. And in a sense, yes, it's talking about food, but it's something so much more than that. God is preparing Peter for the fact that the Gentiles are being brought into the fold. That the good shepherd came not only for the house of Israel, but for those outside of the house of Israel. They also belong to his flock. And he's beginning to help Peter understand that, as we talked about this before, God shows no partiality. That was the whole point uh, when Peter was here at Cornelius' house. He said, I, I realize, I see now that God is not a God of partiality. He shows no partiality here. And that he, uh, he has brought salvation not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And that ultimately is what this vision is all about. Well, verse 11, At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen an angel standing in the house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you the words by which you and all your household will be saved. And so Peter is just re, uh, explaining to the brethren there that messengers had come as he came out of this vision. He was trying to understand, Lord, what could this mean? And at the same time, these guys were already standing outside of the house. They had come there to get him and they told him that Cornelius sent us to come get you because he was told by an angel that you would come with a message of salvation and that's exactly what this was all about God was calling Peter to go to the Gentiles and to give them the gospel and that's what Peter did in obedience he was told by the spirit to to believe these men don't doubt them but go go with them to Cornelius's house in Joppa and he gave the, the message of the gospel. We talked about that last time. Well, verse 15. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent, 
And they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance of life. That's beautiful. And Peter recounts to them that he was there, he was preaching the gospel, they believed the message, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And he uses that language. They were baptized with the Spirit. And he refers back to the promise that Jesus gave. And you've heard me talk about this many times over. And Jesus said, you know, John the Baptist, he has baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what happened to the apostles and many more. They believed on the Lord. The Holy Spirit came. They were baptized. They spoke in different tongues. That is Acts chapter 2. Well, it happened again. But this time it happened to the Gentiles at Cornelius' house. And so they were shocked to hear this. But when they heard this, they understood clearly God has now brought salvation to the Gentiles. There's nothing that they can say. They can't argue against this. It is very obvious. The Holy Spirit had fallen upon them. And I just wanted to take a, a moment and draw your attention to how Peter refers to that, the Holy Spirit coming. That they had received the same gift. And truly, that's what it is. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that word gift, it comes from the same word as grace. Because that's what grace is. Grace, it is simply something that God gives us that we didn't deserve. It's a gift. We didn't earn it. We could not ever deserve it. God simply pours it out on us because He is a generous God. He is a benevolent God. He is a giver of good gifts. And we're told if we put our faith in Christ, if we believe in Him and what He has accomplished for us on the cross, that we will be forgiven and we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. God will give us His Spirit. And Jesus refers to it as a gift in Luke chapter 11. You know, He talks about earthly parents, earthly fathers. They know how to give good gifts to their children, right? But if we, being evil, compared to God, God is infinitely good. And compared to Him, we're not doing so great. We're not that good. But we still know how to bless our children. If that is the case, how much more does God give good, what? Good gifts. Amen? And so that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And Peter refers to the Holy Spirit as a gift. And I, I can say that as one of the sweetest gifts that I have ever received from our Lord. I am so thankful for the Holy Spirit in my life and the gift of God that the Spirit is to me. And many of you in here, you know that gift. Many of you in here are Spirit-filled Christians, and you can yes and amen, amen that too. And Jesus said, you know, that He is the living water. That if we thirst, if we come to Him, that out of our hearts will flow rivers of living water. And we're told in John chapter 7 that He was speaking of the Holy Spirit. And so I want to just encourage you with that. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, if you haven't put your, your trust in Him, you can do that today. You can be born again. You can be forgiven of your sins. You can have a relationship with God. You can have the Holy Spirit living in you. The, the Comforter. The Counselor. The One that leads us to the truth. The One that sanctifies us. And uh, they had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that is available to us today. We're told to ask. Simply ask and that the Lord would pour His Spirit out upon us. It's something I pray for myself regularly. It's something that I pray for you all. I pray that we would be a Spirit-filled church, a Christ-centered church, a God-glorifying church, 
a Spirit-filled church. Amen? Peter saw it as the gift that it was. And he said, the gift has fallen upon the Gentiles. It's undeniable. Alright? Well, verse 19. We're going to look at the, uh, the initial expansion of the Gospel as it is now going to go beyond the, the borders of Israel. So verse 19 Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord." Alright, so you'll recall Stephen's death in chapter 7. After that happened, and Saul was there, and he consented to Stephen's death, and he was holding the, the coats of those who stoned Stephen, and then after that, persecution broke out, and Saul was like a madman on a, on a rampage, and the church began to scatter. They were supposed to do that in the first place. They were supposed to go out and take the gospel everywhere, but they didn't. They stayed localized. So persecution broke out and they began to scatter. And so now we're, we're being told how the gospel began to make its way up into these various places. So I wanted to show you on a map here. As we move forward in the coming weeks, we're going to start looking at maps quite a bit, especially as we look at uh, Paul's missionary journeys. But I had shown you guys recently the map of Israel itself, and now this is a much larger map, so Israel is just right down here. And so this is Jerusalem, this is where the church is, and, and we're going to come back to this map in a little bit and talk about some other things, um, but basically they're going to work their way up to Antioch. The gospel is going to go here, it's going to go to Cyprus, it's going to go uh, throughout Phoenicia, and this is up above Israel, so... At this point, the gospel is going from down here, out of Israel, up into this area. Antioch is going to become kind of like the headquarters for the, the Gentile church from where Paul will launch out a few times and he'll take the gospel all throughout here in Galatia. He'll go up into Macedonia, down into Achaia where Corinth is, and then even over into Italy, the church of Rome. And we think he goes even farther over into Spain, but we don't have that uh, recorded in, in Acts. So the gospel is going to make it in Acts all the way from here up into Rome, but for now it is just right up here. And this is, just to put it in perspective, this would be modern day Turkey right here. So this is Asia Minor. This is where the, um, around this area here is where the seven churches in Revelation are. Uh, and uh, Ephesians, the church of Ephesus, Colossae, it's, it's in there as well. So at this point, that's where the gospel is beginning to spread outside of the bounds of Israel. All right, well, verse 22, Barnabas kind of comes on the scene here. The news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. 
All right, so here we, we see Barnabas is on the scene. And he functioned like an apostle in some ways. When they would hear that, uh, when the church would hear that wonderful things were happening, we know that uh, at one point they sent Peter out to Samaria to see what was going on. You'll recall that story with uh, Simon the sorcerer. <clears throat> but now they're hearing about this work happening and they send Barnabas and he comes and he sees that the grace of God is in that place and his response to that is joy. It made him glad. He saw the grace of God and he was glad. We're told that he was a man full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. He saw the grace of God and it brought him joy. And I love that about Barnabas. Truly, he lives up to his name. He was given that name by the apostles. And the name means son of encouragement. He was an encourager. Do you know any encouragers? I know several of them. And I'm so grateful for the encouragers that God has placed in my life. And I... I desire to be that to other people. I desire to be the one who speaks a word of encouragement. Sometimes that's all a person needs. They just need a, a little boost that will help them make it one more day. You know, and, and Barnabas was that guy. He really came alongside people. He came alongside Saul uh, initially when the church didn't trust Saul at all. All they knew about him was that he had been a persecutor of the church and they were very suspect of him and Barnabas came alongside and encouraged the church to accept and embrace Saul. And so that is Barnabas. And now he is here and he's encouraged when he sees grace. And I've talked about this before, but I think it's worth mentioning again. Are you encouraged? Are you excited? Are you refreshed when you see people experience grace? when you see people experience mercy. Because some people are not. Some people seem to be full of joy when they see people get what they think, perceive as coming to them. You know, uh, Some people, when they see people get mercy or grace, they actually, it makes them angry or upset. And I just think of the, um, the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Remember that story? When the prodigal son returned home and he was sure that if he could just be a servant to his father, that that would be better than the life that, that he was living at that point. And he came back and his father restored him completely. And you'll recall there's another character in the story. Anybody remember who he is? The older brother. And he was not happy. He was angry that his dad would, uh, would give grace, that he would restore his brother like that because you know, he had done everything right. You know, I've always done everything right. And I didn't get it. I didn't get any of this. That's that's the idea there. You know, Lord, please don't ever let us have a self-righteous attitude like that. Don't ever let us think that we have done it right and we deserve. We don't. We don't deserve. I mean, we do deserve, but you know what we deserve? We deserve separation from God. We don't deserve anything good from God. But God has been gracious and He's poured blessing out upon us it ought to rejoice the heart to see God pour blessings and grace out on other people. And that was the case for Barnabas. And he encouraged them with purpose of heart to continue in the Lord. And that's what it's all about. You know, encouraging folks to stay the course, to go deep, to be disciples of God, and to be lovers of His Word. And Jesus said that if you abide in My Word, then you are disciples indeed. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And that whole, the whole idea there, to abide, means to continue, to stay the course. And so that's my word to you guys. Stay the course. 
Some of you may be struggling in here today, and you might just be hanging by a thread. I want to encourage you, stay the course. God is good. He loves you. He's for you. He's with you. He has a glorious plan. He's going to bring glory to His name, and He is going to make you into the image of His Son. He has a, a, a plan for your life, a purpose. Stay the course. I want to encourage you, stay with the Lord. Keep, keep your heart on Him and Him alone. Don't get distracted. That might be another word for somebody in here. We, how easily do we get distracted? And we're told not to be entangled with the affairs of this life. There are so many things that are fighting for our affections. It could be our job. It could be school. It could be a relationship. It could be anything. It could be a hobby. All seemingly good things. It could be you know, children. And, and I want to encourage you to keep your heart set on God. Keep your heart set on the things of the Lord. Okay. This was the place where they were first called Christians. That's pretty interesting. That term is not found very often in the New Testament. But this is the first time that we see it. And I've always heard that this was not a good thing. It was kind of a term of, of derision. It was, it was like saying little, uh, a mini-Christ. You know, you're a, a little Jesus. Uh, but it, it does literally mean the party of Christ. And so they're becoming very distinct at this point. Initially, they really did blend in with the Jewish people and uh, they didn't have uh, much of their own distinction. But now they are clearly becoming uh, noticeable as their own distinct group, the, the, the Nazarenes. There's several different names that are given to them. They were of the way. They were believers. Uh, but now they are Christians. And Antioch was the first place where that started happening. Alright, well verse 27. And in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea, this they also did and sent it uh, to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So here we meet Agabus. We're going to see him again. He was a prophet here in the New Testament. He would later prophesy that Paul was going to be bound when he went to Jerusalem later on in the book of Acts. But here we see him come forth and he prophesies about a famine that was going to happen. And so Paul and her Saul and Barnabas at this point purpose that they're going to go out and they're going to begin to take up an offering to minister to the, the churches in Jerusalem, the churches that were hit by this famine. And we're told that everyone gave according to their ability and uh, they determined to, to help and to send financial relief to these people. So uh, Saul and Barnabas kind of set out on this, this mission at this point. All right. Moving into chapter 12, now Peter's going to come back into the story. So chapter 12, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Alright, so now we're looking at uh, Herod here. 
This would actually be the grandson of the Herod that tried to have all the, the children, uh, I think around one and two years old, killed when Jesus was born. That, that Herod. That was Herod the Great. This is his grandson. And now this is kind of a political persecution. This guy really sought to have favor with the Jewish people. And so he had James killed. So this was the first of the twelve disciples to die of persecution. Now, um, Judas had hung himself already. But now uh, James, the brother of John, was going to be put to the sword. And I've always understood that to mean he was beheaded. So he was beheaded, and the Jews were very pleased by this. So Herod thought, well, I'm just going to keep going. So now he's going to start killing off other people that were very notable to the Jewish nation. And so Peter was next. So they arrested Peter, but this was uh, during a feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was actually, it happened at the same time as Passover. Passover was a seven-day feast. So day one, Passover, day two, unleavened bread, day three was first fruits. And it continued on for a few more days. And all of those are kind of lumped together. And sometimes Passover and unleavened bread are used interchangeably. And so this was a great feast time and the, the nation would be swelling with, with pilgrims. And so they would generally try to not do things like this, not, not kill people that were... Um, Notable because they didn't want to cause uh, a riot, so they decided they were going to wait till after the feast before they would uh, take Peter out. So that's what's uh, going on at this point. Um, but notice that the church was praying. The church was uh, in constant prayer for Peter. And I think there's a couple of things. One, it's just important to be a praying church. We see that all the way from the very beginning. The church came together and they prayed. They understood that this was serious. James had been killed. Up to this point, they may have thought that the apostles were kind of untouchable, that these guys, these are the, the super Christians called of God and nothing can really befall them like this. And now one of the number has been killed. And so the urgency is there and Peter is next. And so they're, they're praying uh, for him, praying with urgency, I would say. And so again, it's just an encouragement to us as a church to be a praying church. You know, I think from church to church, what I hear so often is that their churches struggle in the, in the place of prayer. And whenever you have prayer meetings, there are typically a handful of faithful prayer warriors who show up, but it's usually something that's not very well attended. And so you can have several prayer meetings and not really have people show up. That's a shame. It, it's... Uh, that was never God's heart for His church. The church has always been a praying body of believers. And we saw that they came together here with great cause and great purpose and they were praying for Peter. Now verse 6. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals, and so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him, and did not know what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out, and they went down one street, 
And immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So God preserved Peter. It wasn't Peter's time. You know, I've often heard it said that, you know, there is a time that is appointed to us to die, right? The Scriptures talk about that. It's appointed to every man to die and then the judgment. And so in the meantime, we can just live as recklessly as we want. That's not, I would not encourage you that way, obviously. But it wasn't Peter's time. It wasn't his hour. And so God showed out in an amazing way to preserve Peter. And it's amazing that Peter didn't even really understand what was happening at first. He didn't even know. He thought he was having another vision. He had already had that one vision before he went to Cornelius' house. So now he's kind of thinking that he's having another vision here. He doesn't even realize that he's actually being led out of the prison. God is preserving Peter because God had a purpose still for Peter, a plan. And so finally, when Peter did realize that he had been delivered out of, out of these people's hands, I mean, you could just imagine the shock, the excitement. And he said, you know, now I know for certain that I am delivered from Herod and the expectation of the Jewish people. They expected to kill Peter. And Peter knew it was coming. And God showed out in this incredible way and set Peter free and Peter escaped that persecution that was to come. Well, verse 12. Now we're going to kind of go back to the praying church. Verse 12. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, You are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, It is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Alright, so now they're, they're back here at John Mark's house. And he would have been the nephew of Barnabas. So this would be Barnabas' sister's house. And we think that this is the upper room. This is the same place where Jesus and his disciples uh, shared the Last Supper together, the Passover meal. And they continue to use this room. And now the church is there, they're praying for Peter's release, I would imagine. And it doesn't seem like they have much faith that it's actually going to happen though. Because Peter shows up and they don't even believe the girl. They're like, you're crazy. You've lost your mind. She's so excited, she doesn't even open the door. She runs back in to tell everyone that Peter is here. And they're like, get out of here. No, he's not. And so I'm encouraged by that because you know God answered a prayer that evidently didn't have a lot of faith behind it. But God had a plan for Peter's life there, and God preserved Peter, and, and God blessed their prayers undoubtedly, even though they didn't seem to have much faith that it was even going to happen in the first place. So it's weird to me that they come up with this idea that it's his angel. And so I, that never really stood out to me before, but they're like, you know, to them it's more reasonable to think that Peter's angel is standing outside the door than to think that it's just Peter. And so, to me, the whole thing's kind of comical. But there was like a, a, a legend or a superstition uh, station that existed at that time that each person had his own guardian angel that could even assume that person's form. 
uh, according to, to one commentator, John MacArthur mentions that. And so they seem to think that it's not actually Peter, it's just his, his angel at the door. And so they go to the door and they see that it is Peter. And so they're exhilarated as, as you could imagine. And I imagine that they make all kinds of noise and uproar in verse 17. But Peter motioning to them with his hand to keep silent. And he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go, tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. So Peter kind of motions with his hands, be quiet, you know. Obviously at this point he's, he's probably trying to have a low profile. But he says, go tell James what has happened. Now, obviously one James has already been killed. So this is not James the uh, apostle. This will be James the half-brother of, of Jesus. The book of James that, that we have in the back of the New Testament, that would be this James. And he, he didn't believe Jesus when Jesus was alive here on the earth. He became a believer after the resurrection and he became the leader of the Jerusalem church. So Peter tells them, hey, go and tell James what has happened. But then Peter takes off. And um, he departs to an unknown place. And this is pretty much the last that we see of Peter. He pops up one time uh, really quickly in chapter 15. And we'll see that when we get there. But by and large, this is kind of the end of the narrative for Peter. And the story is going to shift towards Saul, uh, later Paul. And so the guards. The guards, uh, we were told that, um, that there were these four different uh, groups of soldiers that were stationed there. Basically, there would be four squads. So that was uh, four soldiers. Peter would be chained between two, and then there would be two at the door. And then they would rotate. There were four groups of four soldiers, and they would each guard for a watch. And so... This was the way that it worked. If a prisoner escaped, then you would be killed by the same death that that prisoner was going to get. So all of these soldiers, as you might imagine, were scrambling to try to find Peter, but they couldn't. And so finally Herod examined them and they were put to death for, for this happening. And then we're told that Herod went to Caesarea. So look at the map one more time. Now we've already seen Caesarea before and I, I had talked about it um, so it's right there and Herod comes down to Caesarea at this point and this is kind of where we leave off in the story and it's interesting I'll just uh, get into it verse 20 now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aide their friend, they asked for peace because, they, uh, because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, The voice of a god and not of man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname 
was Mark. All right, so we're told here that Herod has these dealings with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and he was angry with them. But they depended upon Herod, they depended upon uh, his, his wealth, his kingdom, to supply them with provisions, to kind of keep their economy moving, to keep them fed. And so they needed Herod's favor. So Herod comes to this place, and they all gather, and he's in his royal array, and I've heard it said, I think it was Josephus that said he was wearing some sort of a silver coat. And that where he was in Caesarea and the way the sun would shine in and the coat that he was wearing, the whole place would be illuminated with, with this, um, this brilliance that came off of his jacket. And so everyone is saying, you know, this is the voice of a god and not of man. And obviously they're just trying to appeal to his ego here for political gain. And he receives this, and uh, we're told that he gets struck by an angel of the Lord, and he gets eaten with worms. I imagine that's it's uh, like an intestinal worms. And so, according to Josephus, again, for about five days he was in extreme agony, and then he finally died of of this. Uh, he was eaten to death by worms, but it didn't happen instantly. And it, we're told it's because he did not give glory to God. That's scary, you know. Um, I thank God that as believers, as Christians, you know, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to worry about getting struck and eaten with worms, right? But I think there's still something very serious about giving glory to God. God has done so much in our lives. God continues to do so much in our lives. And God ought to be glorified. And we're told that we should consider, we should acknowledge God in all that we do. God will direct our paths, but we want to be those who are always pointing to the Lord. We're directing people to the Lord. Anything good that we, that we have, any good gift that has been given to us, anything that we, we have to offer, it's all God. And so we want to be people who are habitually pointing to the Lord and bringing glory and, and honor to Him and, and not seeking the glory of man, not seeking the praises of men, not living uh, for the fear of men. And that is something that we are really motivated by. Way, way more than I think most of us realize. And it's simply not to be. We are to be people who are motivated by the pleasure of the Lord, doing what we do for the glory of God. May God be glorified in our lives. And that is it's a deadly serious matter to God. God is very jealous for His glory. He will not share it with anybody and uh, he alone deserves glory and all the glory that we could give. Well, he was clearly agitated by what was happening with Herod here and him receiving the worship and the praise of men as they were saying this and he was uh, just exulting in it. And so he was struck by that and that is the end of Herod. And so now we see Barnabas and Saul and they take John Mark. Now, this is significant. John Mark is the, the author of the Gospel of Mark. As I said, he's the, the nephew of Barnabas, and they're going to go out, and they're going to travel together, and we'll talk more about that later, but that's kind of where the story leaves off right here. And so we'll close with that. I want to have the worship team come up and uh, have our prayer team come forward, please. And uh, I guess let's just think about the the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, as I was really pondering, where do you close with this? Where do you close as you kind of consider these things? And I think about the 
God, praise God that He He opened the door that we who were not a people are now a people of God. Amen? We were outside of God's blessing. We were separated from God's blessing and His people and He has now brought us in. And now we are children of God. And God's blessing is on us and we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. I was thinking about that, the blessing of that, just worshiping God, thanking Him for His Spirit, asking that God would pour His Spirit out on us more. And then lastly, that we would be people that would glorify God. We don't steal God's glory. We don't live for the glory of, of man, but that we live to the glory of God and that we are uh, reflections of, of God's glory. Father, we love You and we praise Your holy name, God. Glory to Your name. May You be magnified, Lord. May You be worshipped. Here and now as we lift our voices as a congregation, as we sing to You, God, we praise You, Lord. Thank You for all the blessings that You so freely pour out on all of us in this room. Thank You for Your Holy Spirit, God. I pray that You would pour Your Spirit out on us in a fresh, fresh way, Lord. Pour Your Spirit out upon all of, all of us in this room here today, God. We love You and we thank You. Thank You that You have adopted us, that You have called us into Your family, and now we are beloved children of the Most High God, and we worship You. Glory to Your name, Father. In Jesus' name, Amen.